I remember when my husband died last year in August, and I was able to have home hospice. The most incredible joy was seeing everybody being able to come and say goodbye to him. Mm. And, and when he died, I wrote a poem, which I could read to you if you yes. wanted it. Hey family, I'm Coach Steph. And I'm Dr. Angela. We are the Grief Sisters. Together, we lost four family members in a seven-week time period. We know suffering. You may feel lonely, but you're not alone. Let's jump in. Hey family, this is Dr. Angela, and I'm so stoked to be welcoming an expert in trauma who has helped me personally and whom I admire very much. You all will love her too. Let me share a bit about her work. Professor Frida Rundell has worked in South Africa with parents, children, and youth over a span of 55 years as a teacher, special needs teacher, and educational psychologist. Currently, she is a founding professor for the International Institute for Restorative Practices and focuses on trauma and narrative work. Her experience working with adversity, special needs, and communities that are under-resourced is pivotal for her. Professor Rundell initiated and developed an undergraduate program for child and youth care professionals at Durban University of Technology in South Africa. Today, this program provides licensing for child and youth workers on the Social Work Council in South Africa. Professor Rundell's work within community-based programs with youth is extensive. As a narrative and trauma practitioner, she adapts narrative processes to everyday living. Integrating new ideas into restorative practices, Professor Rundell intentionally invites families and communities to celebrate their humanity where belonging, voice, and agency are pivotal. Professor Rundell, welcome to the Grief Sisters. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to be able to be with you for a while. We are so delighted to have you with us. Hi, Professor Randell. This is Coach Steph. And yes, welcome to the show. No, thank you. <laughs> we wanted to begin by, you've done a, extensive work across nations, across all different kinds of groups over the span of many years. We would love to just start with, why do you do the work that you do? What is it about your work that motivates you to do it? I think one of the main things for me is really to, actually reach people's potential and many times we stop short of that mm. and so creating those moments where people get some kind of aha experience and realize wow yes I can do this mm. and that for me is really important because it's really opening up the emotional brain so that people can see their potential mm. You helped me to do that on numerous occasions. I really appreciate you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Angela. That is so powerful. This is Coach Steph here. Uh, when I first launched into my grief journey in 2017, I personally felt, of course, very lost, painfully stuck, and honestly in shock for a long time. There are so many others out there that I know that are in the grieving process or have been grieving for a long time. and and still feel stuck. Professor, can you tell us why that is and 
what can we do when we're feeling stuck in our grief? You know, grief is sometimes a really messy business and a messy experience, but it's a truly human, normal experience. <laughs> and so it just depends on how you experience that event. And many times when people are not prepared for it, the shock of it really means that they have to take time. And one of the first things is just acknowledging the loss, acknowledging the reality of that loss. Because if you haven't experienced it before, it's a new experience. And what it really, why I say it's a human experience and it's a natural experience is because you have to visibly express the loss. Mm. Embrace the pain because what you go through is a lot of pain. The pain, sometimes initially there's denial, you know, you, you, it's not happening and you suppress it. And that's probably the worst thing. But if you find yourself going through periods in a day where sometimes you feel angry, sometimes you're bargaining, what, why should this happen to me? and other times you're feeling depressed and sad, those are normal experiences that really need to be able to be expressed. And that's why storytelling is really helpful. Yeah. So you think about a, if you get into an accident, the first thing you want is to be able to share it with somebody, connect with somebody. And the next thing is to be able to relax your muscles self-regulate yourself so that you can move in. And many times with grieving, we, we're still struggling with acknowledgement of the loss and how to share those emotions that are going all over the place in one day. And we feel it's not normal, but it is. And then being able to tell it to somebody, connect with somebody to share that experience it relieves the muscle tension in the body and it allows you to do the very first three steps in mourning, in grieving, acknowledgement of the reality of the loss, embracing the pain of the loss, and then being able to remember the person or the thing that you have lost. Mm -hmm. Use this language of like, of humanness of that the grief brings out the humanness in us when you have said and I quote grief allows us to invite our common humanity to become visible could you say more about what you mean by this the visibility is being able to connect with another human being because one of the interesting things is we have a brain that is incredibly complex and when we've had a distressful or stressful experience of loss. Our brain actually works for us. The amygdala, which actually is your alarm, puts you into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So if, if you can fight back, that's the self-regulation of being able to talk to somebody or share the feelings that you're feeling. But in today's society, everybody wants to be so stoical you know, we're coping, 
that means you're repressing it. And we're really needing to express it and share it without judgment. And you see, there are certain grieving processes where people can't express it. For instance, I think of Walter Long, who works with uh, people on death row. Mm. And they, their families can't grieve openly. Or somebody who has been sexually assaulted or physically assaulted, and they can't share without having judgment put on them. And that's unresolved grief, where they can't mourn openly and be human. So for me, the visibility of being able to grieve with community that can connect and refrain from judgment, I always say, listen. And I think of Wilfred's words when he works with grieving. He always says, when someone is grieving, take your best china and sit with them and leave it there. <laughs> and in two months' time, you want your best china back, but that's when they'll need you just to sit again with them and hear their story. Mm -hmm. Professor, I just love the idea of saying that sharing my story is a way of self-regulation, allowing people to first hear my story and then me learning in a way how to share my story. It could just simply be the story of what happened the day I found out my son passed away or the day Angela and I found out about our dad or any of the various situations that anyone has been in. I think that people understanding the power in being able to share that story allows them, as you said, relieve our muscles. That sounds so great. It sounds like the relief that, that so many people need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you look at your own stories and how you experienced so much loss in so short a time, and it didn't allow you time to acknowledge, embrace the pain, and share, because the sharing allows to, you to externalize it. When you externalize it, it it doesn't repress it in your body and in your mind. You're able to navigate something. And when you go to sleep that night, there's myelination that takes place and a new experience, particularly if it's not judged. So judgment from society is what stops many of us from openly grieving. Mm -mm. I would definitely agree with that, wouldn't you, Angela? Oh, absolutely. And I guess a question, and I don't know if you have an answer for us, Professor Rendell, but what do we do when we feel like we do have a story that, that is too much for other people? How do we find the right person to talk to first? Like, is it finding someone like you that we start with? When I think about like physical or sexual abuse that we have experienced, or domestic violence situations, when I think about even divorce initially for me has been, I mean, even until now, like I've had such a difficult time talking about being divorced publicly because I feel a sense of like shame around it that I've had to let go of numerous times. And when we feel shame or we feel 
like the story that we had to tell is too much, especially for us. We lost four people in seven weeks between the two of us. It's like when we try to tell that story, people are like just eyes wide open. Oh, my gosh, that was a lot all at once. (laughs) Well, this is where I think oftentimes we have to train people. And I think for me, even training counselors and professionals how to witness and how to stay in that space of being aware and uncomfortable or disempowered is a very special place of self-regulating yourself. And not many people can do it. And I always say we need self-regulated adults to be in the space of young people and children. But it's the same with grieving. If you've got somebody grieving, That's where my relational care ladder, I always say we need that structure and we need the nurturing because structure is a space where you can listen to somebody without interference. For instance, I teach a lot of compassionate witnessing. In one of my courses I call Transforming Relational Harm is where I use my students to actually listen to each other. And we choose each week, we have someone who tells a story or an event that perhaps they haven't shared with somebody. It doesn't have to be a traumatic event, but it was something that perhaps they couldn't share. And then we have someone who facilitates it just by asking questions. Mm -hmm. And then the others are witnesses And when their turn comes to just witness, they witness with curiosity, with connection, with compassion, with encouragement, and how this can connect to community. I call them the five C's. And in this way, many times, even professionals have a hard time staying present with a discomfort. So learning how to breathe and realizing this is somebody else's story and I am giving them a sacred space to be able to tell their story in the way they would like without judgment. Yeah, I feel like you're describing your compassionate witness groups. Yes, I have this in a class, but I also have it in, in professionals who want to just join. And we do this once a month. I have five groups that actually join once a month and they just share their stories with each other. And it's a way that professionals can also share anything that they're grieving over, that they have regret over, that they need to experience and let go of. Because if you don't acknowledge and embrace and remember you cannot go through the next three stages of mourning or grieving. Mm. The next few stages are developing a new identity for yourself, searching for meaning, and then learning to find a support group that helps you. Do you allow anybody to join your compassion witness groups? Or like- yes, they just okay. need to. They just need to email me, and I usually then sometimes when I'm the Groups are full. I develop another group. I call them co-vision groups. We co-vision. Instead of supervision, we co-vision. 
I love it. Okay, we are going to put this in the show notes, everyone. So listeners, if you want to be a part of one of Professor Rundell's Compassionate Witness Groups, we are going to have that in the show notes. You're going to be able to find where you can sign up for one of her groups. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is the space. It's a sacred space. And it's a space where people can share and feel that they've externalized just some angst, some distress that still stays within them. Mm. And they haven't been able to freely share with the community that they're most attached to. Mm. I think that's important because so often I think professionals or people that are helping others, you think of doctors and nurses or CEOs of companies, they often don't have their own place mm -hmm. to, to have a discussion or just let it all hang out. Angela said earlier, just a little embarrassed or you feel like I should be the tough one or I'm leading this big company. I don't have time for this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are so many expectations that we have of ourselves when we are wanting to be in the world and help others. And many times those experiences in childhood have taught us how to overcome. We either withdraw and develop a sense of how we can avoid the conflict, or sometimes we just blame ourselves rather. Other times, you know, there are different ways that we actually address some of this discomfort that we hold in ourselves. And we all need that space to be able to share. Mm. Absolutely. Professor Rundell, do you have any questions for us that you'd like to talk about? I mean, if you think about the series of losses that both of you have experienced, and you think how much time and look what you're doing with it, look at the resiliency that you're bringing into focus and the visibility that you're doing. How long did it take you to actually come up with a podcast that could actually address it? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, we get asked that a lot. And we have an, another podcast where we kind of introduce ourselves as hosts that we get into a little bit more detail about that. But just the cliff notes is that Angela and I are, as you know, sisters in real life and sisters in grief. It's taken us almost six years to <laughs> yeah. finally decide that we were going to do something about these feelings we've had probably for at least two or three years that we wanted to work together and we wanted to find ways to help people feel relief that we so badly needed and also find a way to, as you say, tell their story in an effective way for themselves, but also in a way that they maybe can have a way to grow from what they've had happen to them in their life and not be stuck there forever because there's so much more to life to be felt even in those traumatic and in grief times. And I think this is really courageous of you because you're giving yourselves permission to feel, to share, and you're allowing other people to realize how they can share and feel because it's impacting your identity. And particularly, as I say, certain kinds of losses, suicide, for instance, is one of the ones that people don't like to visibly share because they feel the shame of a culture. 
And it depends on how people are experiencing that. And if they can't share, I mean, it's major. It really is major. I just commend both of you for being able to find a way to find expression, allow people to storytell themselves. Thank you so much. Your kind words mean more than you know. <laughs> and I think this will be a great time to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking more about grief and trauma and how they're related and words that we hear these days like trigger and some of those definitions that we can explain. So we'll be right back. Thank you. If you have experienced loss of any kind, you may be feeling overwhelmed and stuck. We get it. That's why we created RISE. It is an engaging five-step journey that you can take at your own pace that will help you get on the road toward healing. It comes with videos and a companion guide and easy actions you can try each day to help you to find relief. To join the RISE journey, head to thegriefsisters.com or check out the link in today's show notes. Thanks everyone for joining us again. We're here with Professor Rundell and she has 55 years, maybe more now, right? But a lot of years of experience in helping people to navigate grief and trauma through storytelling and compassionate witness, among many other things that she does. We're so delighted to have her here to talk about her experience, her education, and how she helps others. We're going to move to talking now about the relationship between grief and trauma. We know that they are related. As an expert in helping people to find healing after trauma, Professor Rundell, could you talk about trauma? What is it? And what is the relationship from your perspective between grief and trauma? That's an interesting question. <laughs> because trauma, really, if it's true trauma, it keeps reliving the past in the present. Mm. And post-traumatic stress is exactly that. Whereas grieving is a different process that the human being has to actually start acknowledging the loss, allowing the pain to just move through. The more the emotions are changing through the day, the more you know you're healing in terms of grieving. But with trauma, people think that trauma is an event. It's not an event. Hmm. Trauma is, you can have a traumatic event, but not everybody becomes traumatized through a traumatic event. And it depends on that person's own resiliency to self-regulate and breathe when something like this happens and connect with people that can be helpful. There's something that happens in the brain where the brain protects us. And when you find that during grief, there's a startle moment, but if you can find options of fight or flight and to self-regulate yourself, you're absolutely helping yourself move into grieving. 
But where it doesn't, where the mind takes you, don't find options, and your mind freezes. And that freeze moment actually diminishes your cognitive experience. In other words, you have what we call a different state of being, an altered state of being. So freezing can lead to traumatic response. It is said that the body keeps is the scorecard, mm-hmm. but yes. the mind keeps the score. And the mind does the monitoring of knowing. And if it goes into freeze, you are not conscious of what you're doing then. Mm. That's when people become dissociative or there are two things that we always look for in in post-traumatic experiences. And that is the reliving in a dream state of the traumatic experience. So it could be nightmares. It could be flashbacks where they just have a word and it flashes back. It's called dissociation. In other words, you go into an altered state. And when there's an altered state, that is only when we call post-traumatic stress. So we can call grief a distressful, a stressful, or adverse experience, but it depends on people and how they process it and how the mind and the body will choose to process it. It really happens to be if there's no out, if there's no ability to recognize the loss, you will stay in a stuck state. And I've seen this with a woman who has been married for 50 years and she happened to leave her husband with her daughter for a few weeks just to be able to go and sort out some things and her husband dies. She cannot forgive herself for doing that. She stays then in a stuck state. She's frozen. She cannot negotiate the processes of mourning because she doesn't want to forgive herself. Hmm. And that's when the memories start coming because you're now internalizing it in a very different state, what we call an altered state. So trauma itself is a word that we're using so often right now, and I prefer to use it as state where if you have a traumatic experience, it doesn't lead to trauma, mm. as in post-traumatic stress. That's so powerful and it's so relevant right now. Professor, these days we often also hear the word triggered. What does it mean to be triggered after experiencing trauma and what do we do about it? Could you touch on that a little bit too? So the triggering experience is usually when the, the mind has said fight or flight and the trigger is the body actually experiences the sensation. You think about it when you were a baby, you only had senses, the five senses. So when I say the body actually keeps the scorecard, it has a vibrational level 
that when a, anything on the sensual side, so you think of your five senses, hearing, it could be something you hear, seeing, something you see, tasting, smelling, or touching. That's where sexual abuse or smelling. I had one youngster who at 18 came home to his home on fire and his mother died. Hmm. He chose to be a paramedic. Oh, goodness. And five years later, he suddenly has a panic attack. And when I ask him what, what happened before the panic attack, he said he was watching a video and it had a house on fire. Do you see the visual? Mm -hmm. The visual memory sparks the trigger and the muscles contract. The breathing then short changes and you go into an amygdala alert and you have no way out and you don't know why. That is the altered state that you didn't know you were in, in a normal way. But it then increases a panic attack and a panic attack is real. Mm -hmm. It lasts for 10 to 20 minutes and he actually thought he was dying and got to the hospital. 20 minutes later, it was gone. But you see, that's the difference. It, it, the trigger is about a memory that the body has of something on the five senses. It could be any one of the five senses. Yeah. And so, for instance, with sexual abuse, that's when touch will trigger something. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize it, but they... They, it places them in an altered state and they have no option out. See, the options out are what helps you actually go through distress or stress. And you can start connecting with somebody and relaxing the muscles. Yes. You, yes. There are a couple of things that you have really helped me to do to work through stuff from my past. And that I found really, really helpful. One, obviously, is the breath work that you've taught me a lot about. So I'm wondering if you could talk for a moment about why breathing, this thing that I'd kind of heard throughout the years, even in PhD work, oh, your breath is important, attend to your breath. But I hadn't really done this practice really intentionally until meeting with you for the last two years. And it's been really important and helpful. So I was wondering if you could talk about both breath work and why it helps us and what we could like, what kind of breath work you teach people to do. And also rain. If you could talk for a minute about rain, that would be awesome as well. Well, in breath work, it really is about understanding that when we breathe in, we use a somatic, it's somatic breaths on the vagal nerve. And when we breathe out, it's the parasympathetic. So sympathetic moving in. And if you do short breath, you will be using sympathetic. And that's actually distressing. And as soon as you breathe out through your mouth, it's parasympathetic. And it engages in caring for your body. It increases nutrition. In other words, you'll want to eat. So parasympathetic is a very 
interesting vagal nerve that stretches throughout the body. Mm -hmm. And so when I teach the breathing, there are a couple of methods that I do to engage in the parasympathetic. When we're giving birth to children, mm -hmm. mothers are taught to do long breaths out. That's parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And you are relaxing the muscles as soon as you do parasympathetic. So learning to do that is really important. When I worked with cerebral palsy young people, 60 of them in a, a hostel, we would have a kid who'd go into a meltdown. And to regulate, self-regulate that youngster, we used to teach to give them a balloon, blow. Blow again. <laughs> it's the breath out that calms them down and takes them into a quiet space and have somebody sit with them, non-judgmentally, just sit with them and they calm down. I teach a simple one that you can do morning and evening. As you wake up in the morning and as you go to bed at night, you can just do two-minute breathing exercise that regulates your neural pathway to know how to breathe and relax muscles. And if you can do that, you start training your neural system to be able to relax muscles. And the process is just simply two breaths in, four breaths out through the mouth. Do it five times. Three breaths in, six breaths out through the mouth, five times. And four breaths in, eight breaths out through the mouth, five times. That takes just over two minutes. That will calm the amygdala down and put your thinking brain back in line so that you don't have to overthink. It relaxes the muscles. Yes. And it's been an incredible way for me to wake up and go to bed. It's been such a powerful practice that has really helped me to center myself, to prepare for the day, and also to quiet the brain and to quiet the body at night to be able to go to sleep. And then I use it too when I get triggered, when I yes. feel out of sorts. And I do your five, you know, I do five sets of all three things and it's incredibly helpful. Um, the other thing that you taught me is rain, which has also been a very helpful way of moving through difficult feelings. Now, one of the things with rain, R A I N, re recognize this R, A, acknowledge what mm -hmm. you're feeling, mm -hmm. I, investigate in the body, where is the tension, and in rain, nurture yourself by breathing or taking a walk. Now, one of the things I also use is the hand. So if you look at your fingers on your hand, your thumb represents worry. Your index finger represents fear. Mm. The, middle, the middle finger, strangely enough, it's anger. Mm. And the ring finger is sadness. 
And the little finger is to-do list. <laughs> so the moment you feel a trigger, you can be doing this 30, 60 times a day. Recognize it. So if it is worry, I would hold my thumb in my other hand and say, I am holding worry. Hmm. Now comes the rain. You see, recognize it. I'm holding worry. Now the acknowledgement. Where am I feeling worry in my body? Scan it. Mm -hmm. Where's the tension? That's the eye investigating where it is in the body. So recognize it, acknowledge it through holding the, the thumb, and then the nurture, breathe into it. And it depends on where the worry is. If it is holding in your chest, the five deep breaths you can give is, ah, see, it's yeah. opening your mouth, five of mm -hmm. them. And you'll find you'll loosen. As soon as the muscles are relaxed, your hold on your thumb will go. It's interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If it yeah. is in the stomach, it's the voo sound. Because you're loosening the tension of the muscles. And actually, if it's in the neck and the shoulders, it's a B sound. B. And if you hold the chin, B. And you rotate your tongue at the back, you'll feel the vibration in your jaw and your neck. And you're loosening that. So you're doing rain. Recognize, acknowledge, investigate, and nurture. Well, yes, Professor Rendell, these, these things that you've helped me to do to be able to attend to my body in moments of seeing the past in the present or seeing the present through the past have been extremely helpful. And I just want to say on air in front of our whole audience, thank you so much for the ways that you have invested in my life and in the lives of so many youth and children and adults in this nation, the United States, also in South Africa and across the globe. I'm so grateful to you and for your wisdom that you've shared with us today. The last question that we ask every guest is, what is one way joy has found you recently? Well, joy finds me at the piano playing away some of my favorite hymns and some of my favorite pieces. And I remember when my husband died last year in August, and I was able to have home hospice. The most incredible joy was seeing everybody being able to come and say goodbye to him. Mm. And, and when he died, I wrote a poem, which I could read to you if you yes. wanted it. Because the poem was my husband. I used to get up very early in the morning and go for a walk. And he would wake up weary-eyed and look at me and say, just 15 more minutes, and he would sleep until 11 o'clock, which was fine. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when he died, I had just finished teaching two classes, and I came through to him on the Sunday morning, and I just hugged him and said, Michael, you need to leave this weary body behind and go to the other world. 
and you need to be able to meet your mother and father and your uncle, who you always thought had a speech impediment. Many times he was always drunk. But 15 minutes mm. later, my husband died, and I wrote this poem called A Tribute to My Beloved. Mm. Just 15 minutes more is what you would say each morning. The warmth and feel of your touch makes me troubles float away like dust. Yet when morning sunlight appears and the magical motivation rises, my beloved lies asleep, mumbling and fumbling just another 15 more minutes. Let your soul move to the rock and roll melodies you so cherished, leaving the physical body that ached and pained. In the end, Michael, you have left some unique stories behind. As a groom, you were married to amazement and curiosity. Your sense of humor was never-ending with, Did you know? Yes, Dad, I'm sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> you, you embraced the world with open arms. You made the most of every situation. Skiing, boating, fishing, flying, engaged trains, reading, and not forgetting. A foodie of note. Oh, man, those oysters. I can tell where they're from. You did not simply visit this world we're in. You engaged and challenged it all the way, mm. never failing to be thankful. Letting go has not been easy. Rest, my beloved, mm. rest. You have earned your entry into another world. I will miss your willingness to live life to its fullest. Mm -hmm. Give me just another 15 more minutes. No. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, you have me in tears. Oh no my gosh. kidding. <laughs> that was so beautiful. What a tribute. Those are my joys. <laughs> I love it. It's sobering, quiet. Alexander Schmemann has called joy as a bright sorrow. We celebrate all that Michael means to you and the, the love that you shared for so many years. Professor Rundell, it has been an absolute joy to have you with us today. And thank you, family, for joining us, too. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you. Don't forget to head over to our website, thegriefsisters.com we have a free gift for you. It's a five-day grief meditation audio track that helps you manage anxiety. It includes a 10-page printable journal that walks you through each of the five days and provides a way to help you track each day. You can also find another audio version of the grief meditation track on episode three of season one of our podcast. We are also currently working on a series of resources and small group opportunities that will be tackling various phases of grief. These breakthrough resources will help you take steps to find the motivation you need to move through grief at your own pace, but move forward nonetheless. So look for updates on our website for those launches soon. Also, please look for our Grief Sisters book club and support group on Facebook. And remember, it's a we don't care if you've read the book club. Join us anyway. 
All of the links will be available in the podcast descriptions. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you.